It's 1700 in Tokyo, 10am in Zurich, 9am here at Midori House in London and 4am in New York City. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Sunday starts now. And a very good morning to you. We're live in London and you're with Monocle on Sunday. It's Emma Nelson here and joining me, Tessa Shishkovitz and Alex von Tunzelman will be joining me around the table to talk about the papers. Hello both. Um, Alex, what have you found? Lots of interesting stories today. So in Le Monde, a story about um, the historical sites that have been destroyed in the Morocco earthquake. Um, in the New York Times, a story about New York City cracking down on Airbnb. Lots of people very upset about that. And in Hong Kong, a huge backlash to a video telling women not to put makeup on on trains. Thank you very much indeed for that. We'll also have the latest from Finland. Finland bans entry of Russian cars. Sweden's king celebrates half a century on the throne. And the Icelanders discover new sheep colors. I'm Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov, and I'll be bringing you news from the Nordic region. It's the 17th of September 2023, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. So welcome to Alex von Tunzelman, the historian, broadcaster and screenwriter, and to Tessa Shishkovitz, UK correspondent for the Austrian magazine Profil. Now, I didn't realise that actually we like to mix it up and have fresh voices and people who are sort of bouncing off each other. But I didn't realise that Monocle has actually become a space where you two have become incredibly good friends and you're travelling across the world and interviewing each other. Is that right? So what happened to Tessa? (laughs) (laughs) Friends with them. So tell us about how this the, the, the speed date, the radio speed dating came about. Well, I was, of course, uh, very honoured to be on the programme with Alex von Tunzelman, who I already had followed on Twitter before, now called X. But um, <laughs> then I invited her to my... Uh, uh, I, I curated a lecture, a talk programme in Vienna in a think tank, Bruno Kreisky think tank for international dialogue. And she came and we talked about her brilliant, brilliant book. And you got a trip to Vienna out of it to talk about your book. I did. It was absolutely wonderful. Well, I think in Vienna there's a very active conversation about the subject of my book, Fallen Idols, which is what we do about problematic monuments. Um, and this is a very, very live conversation in Vienna, which, of course, you can't walk about three metres without tripping over a monument of some sort or other. That you want to maybe take down. That's some of which you might. Um, so I find it's a really interesting conversation there. It's very lively. It's Certainly there's some strong opinions. Um, and and yeah, we had a wonderful time talking about it. And you it. got a trip to Vienna. Right? Yes, I mean, even better. And some, you know. Some it always cake. it always helps when you have, if you're going to discuss something serious, you have to do it in a really nice place, don't you? You mentioned cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's sort of maybe the appeal for people to accept invitations that I issue to British historians to come to Vienna. <laughs> I'm, you know, it's a little sad to say that, but I hope she also came because it's just such a... S- serious and important thing that we will, I work for. We will be talking serious and important things in a moment, not least uh, the return of the Dirndl uh, to uh, the Oktoberfest in pink this year. Uh, the Dirndl narrative is not going away. It's been stitched through Monocle on Sunday's narrative for the last <laughs> month or so, not least due to our, mon- our uh, editorial director, Tyler Brulé, who is not in Europe. Tyler, you're in Hong Kong, aren't you? Very good afternoon to you. Time's just got, what, just gone 16.03. Good morning, uh, Emma, and good morning, guests. Yes, indeed, I'm uh, overlooking Hong Kong's uh, Victoria Harbour right now, and it is a sort of balmy, uh, very much uh, summertime uh, afternoon here in Hong Kong. Everybody out and about walking. Uh, I'm on the Kowloon side looking back over to uh, to Hong Kong Island right now, and uh, the city seems pretty alive for a, for a sunny Sunday afternoon. How wonderful. You just landed from Bangkok, is that right? Indeed, yeah, it's sort of a little Asia tour this week, uh, off to Seoul uh, after this, then up to Tokyo. And I think I'll be speaking to you from Seville uh, this time next week. Okay. Uh, Right. I'm not even going to look at the map to try and fathom what you're going to be up to. What takes you on your mini tour? Uh, mini tour is uh, just uh, as is sort of normally uh, the case when you're running a a media company of, of of our scale, you have to get out of the world. And check in on your colleagues. So I was with our James Chambers, uh, our, our Bangkok uh, 
editor and correspondent, of course, used to be based uh, here as well, so spend a little bit of time uh, with, with James. Uh, and, of course, we have, we have to drum up business uh, as, as well. OK, wonderful. Like, let's get down to businesses, what's happening in, in Hong Kong. Um, headline news, apparently, is that um, when it comes to business and hospitality, uh, humans are no longer the most important concern. Is that correct? Well, it could be. There's, there's two parts to this. I think if, we, if we're going to be focusing on uh, maybe maybe animals, uh, let's go back to Bangkok, uh, where it, it's just fascinating uh, when you see what hotels are up to, new mall developers, Emma. Uh, there's sort of this, this pet-friendly uh, narrative, uh, or maybe even sort of, you know, marketing hook is really taken hold, but it's taken hold in a very different way. And even if I sort of scan uh, the landscape along the promenade here in in Kowloon, you sort of understand you know, how Asian you know, economies view animals, uh, and particularly of, of the furry kind that you can put bows in their hair uh, and, and obviously spend a lot of money at a salon. And so I, 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 right now I can see but three families, children are walking, but the pets are all in prams. Um, now this is nothing new, of course. This is something which this is something which started in in Japan a long time ago. It's it's as you know it's it's perfectly normal uh, to to see not even small dogs uh, and and of course cats, uh, but but also rather large pets in prams being pushed around. And maybe of course on a hot humid day, you know, if I was a Labrador, maybe I want to get pushed around um, as well. But this is, of course, a phenomenon which has started in Asia, and now you see, because uh, you know, once upon a time, you know, major commercial centers, your pets simply were not allowed. And also, your pets were not sort of part of the daily conversation. Well, now they are. So you've got play days in hotels. Uh, you have sort of special meeting up places for pets and animals. And then, of course, a lot of new developments zoning themselves as being completely pet-friendly. But this is not like being in a restaurant in, in Lech or in a, maybe, you know, in a bar in Zurich where you might just sort of you know, park your dachshund under the table um, and maybe, maybe they might bring the pet uh, you know, a little bit of water. This is actually getting the dog you know, up on the banquette with you. Um, you know, maybe you're going to be comparing hair tips with some other friends. As hair tips for the dogs, not uh, for the owners. Uh, so this is something which is just. Listen, this is why I'm out on the road. I have to, of course, you know, bring bring these stories to the fore. Maybe we're going to see, you know, the old world, you know, Europe go full circle. You know, of course, you know, we know we know in North America, everybody's allergic to everything. Um, so you know, pets are sort of increasingly in the background in public spaces. Um, and and yeah, maybe Europe, maybe as ever, becomes a sensible middle ground because it's looking rather wacky over here. I mean, how 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 much of a fan of this are you? Because there are moments where I'm just trying to wonder how you can have a serious conversation with someone with a with a Labrador, I don't know, in a bonnet and a buggy. Well, listen, you know, I'm all for like new business concepts uh, and and certainly you know, being able to spot those. So, listen, good for them, you know. Of course, uh, you know we have falling birth rates uh, you know, in, in in many major economies. Listen, you know, is this, is this how it started in Japan? Never actually seen a big story about this, but is that why the pram makers they they saw the dropping birth rates? They said, "Hey, look at you can get three chihuahuas in there. Go for it." Um- <laughs> I'm going to have to admit some guilt at this point because I actually have a pram for my Maine Coon cat because he's so large, 10 kilos, you can't carry him to the vet in a carrier anymore. I have to push him through the park in a pram. And I'm afraid people do rather stop and look at the woman with purple hair with a giant pram with a huge cat in it. <laughs> Tyler, Fair we, enough. we have Cat Lady in the studio. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we do. <laughs> I don't know how much I'd publicise that. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Um, <laughs> let's bring you in, Tessa. For you know, having spent time in the a large amount of time in the in the rather sort of more um, refined place of, uh, of Vienna, could you see someone pushing around their dogs in in prams? But I think there's a difference in dog culture. So I think in Asia you have these small lap dogs uh, predominantly, while in Europe you still have, like as you said, Labradors. You don't put Labradors in a pram necessarily, but you put them on the floor and under the table. And they are sort of loved um, family members maybe, but not necessarily being pampered like that. I think there's a real difference. It's it's about the size. Tyler, how long now until... You sit on seat 1A and seat 1B has something with a bow in its hair and barks. 
Well, exactly. But I was going to say, I mean, Labradors are the, are the least of our problems. I, I think you know, at, at, at any moment, I might see a, bor- a, a Borzoi in an eight-wheeled pram. <laughs> anyway, uh, Emma, Emma, so the, so the, 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 the other uh, sto- story in terms of uh, economic opportunities, and this, is, this is a theme that we've been talking about, I think, at length um, in, a, in, a, in a post-COVID world. And this was, I think, one of you know, our, our first observations when we came back to, to the cities where we've traditionally spent a lot of time. And, and what was really striking, I think we've even discussed it on this, this very program, you know, whether uh, you know, we've been reporting from Tokyo or we've been in Taipei or we've been in, in Hong Kong. Uh, but what we've seen now uh, is uh, uh, Paul Chan, uh, who is uh, the secretary in charge of business uh, for Hong Kong, um, is, is launching a nighttime vibes initiative. And, and this is uh, something because we, we've seen a bounce back, we've seen a recovery, but because there was such a lingering period where restaurants had to be sort of closed up at, at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the evening, you know, this has created habits and, and, and where you know, many restaurants have now been places of just a single sitting. So you know, why do we love you know, big energetic cities? Why do you like looking from Kowloon back into Hong Kong? Because there's a dynamism. There's that sense of, of promise of a late night ahead, of, of, of thinking of being around Hollywood Road, um, and maybe not sort of around tons of rowdy expats, but just the fact that these, these cities have been defined as, as really you know, 24-hour um, economies, uh, the place where the world wakes up, and, and this has simply not been the case. So government is launching an initiative here in Hong Kong uh, to get people to maybe go for a second sitting, to go for a third sitting, to go out for a drink, you know, at, at, at 11 o'clock in the evening, um, to stay out, you know, past midnight. Uh, so this will come in the form of quite a few uh, festivals uh, on one side, which I think is maybe a little bit misguided. I don't think this has to be about fireworks and laser shows um, because I think that's more of a family pitch. But I think what they do need to work on, though, um, is is also, I think, reminding you know, the world to come back as well. Because on one side, of course, yes, you can have the, the local economy, but you know, part of what, of course, dr- drives these cities as well you know, are, are, are people who maybe do live in, um, in Graz um, and, and are perhaps sort of used to having their schnitzel uh, and being home by 9 o'clock. It's an I don't int- want to offend our listeners. We've got one or two in Graz, but anyway. <laughs> it's an interesting idea, isn't it? Because you, you mentioned there the idea that, that, that Paul Chan is trying to create a, a nightlife, whereas it's really difficult to do that in a city, isn't it? Because when you have sort of the artificial imposition of, of placemaking on a place, it can be quite difficult. But what he's talking about is bazaars at waterfront promenades, colourful shows. Um, it does seem quite family-friendly, doesn't it? But but this is this where he should be targeting? Or are you suggesting that there should be a much more organic boost to culture? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit, well, maybe more than a little bit mi- misguided. I think that this has to you know, come in the form of yeah, maybe it's, it's small business incentives for people to open up new bars, to get people to open up, uh, you know, new clubs. Uh, I think that that's where the stimulus needs to happen. It, it shouldn't be this, I would say, slightly artificial festival approach uh, that, of course, they're proposing. Um, and again, it has to be, it has to be organic, as, as you said. And the problem is, it's, it's, it's not the creation. It's actually, it's just, it's the kickstarting. It's just, it's another phase where you know, I think many global cities have to you know, look at where they've ended up um, in a post-pandemic world and, and how do they amp things up you know, more than a little. Um, Tyler, I want to bring in Alex, who's, who's picked up a, a little bit of a story that you that I'd be keen to hear your response to. It's a story in CNN, which is uh, in response to um, a, a promotional video by the Chinese state-owned railway that's asking women to stop wearing, to stop putting their makeup on on the train. Alex, do you have a second where you can just explain what the, the Yes. Uh, So this has become the most searched, most read, most debated item on Weibo, which is China's main sort of social network. Um, It's a video that sort of does a sort of comedy put down of women putting their makeup on on trains. Um, And there's been a huge backlash from Chinese women and women in Hong Kong. Um, 340 million views by Saturday of this clip. And mostly women just objecting to this, saying, why does it have to be such a gender focused case? of women putting on makeup to illustrate uncivilised behaviour. Tyler, I've just put my Labrador on the train on its, <laughs> on its trolley and I've whipped out my foundation. What's your response? 
Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm moving to the next car, if I can. <laughs> um, listen, I... I, I, I I no. Listen, I, I, I don't think that this is uh, a, a gender topic, and I think like all of these things that get whipped up on on various social platforms, this isn't about gender, or you know, this not this is not something that whipping up something about race or Asia versus you know how people might behave on trains uh, in, in in North America, Europe. This is a story about certain things have to stay within the realm of your private domain. I think, you know, application of, 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 of lipstick, uh, you know, the odd item, fine. Uh, but I think, it's, and again, it's not just women. It's just, you know, what do you do at home? What happens in the bathroom? Uh, you know, the same way, you know, I, I don't think it's great if, 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 if also, you know, a guy sort of whips up his shirt because he forgot to put his antiperspirant on as well. <laughs> it, 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 there, there are certain things that just stay, stay at home. And I think it, it, it's no different. And this is why it's not, it's not a, a discussion about the sexes. This is a conversation about just decent respect for people in a public environment. And, and, you know, it's no different than the other classic one that we like to go on about at length. You know, do you, and this, I had the same fight on a plane to Lisbon the other day where someone had their phone on speaker, you know, one row behind me, and they're having a whole conversation with the family, um, and they've got the phones completely cranked up. And and the woman said, well, this is no different than a normal conversation. It's like, well, no, it's not like a normal conversation because this is through a tinny speaker. Uh, and, uh, it's, and, and, and of course, it, it becomes disturbing. It, it, it's not the same tone or same timber as, as the human voice. So I don't care whether it's makeup uh, or whether it's, it's digital <laughs> devices. Some things need to you know, stay in the reception room and many things need to stay in the bathroom. I promise, Sally, you'll never see me reapply my lipstick in front of you ever again. Uh, Tessa, I'm going to let I you go. Reapplying is okay. I, I, I think it's, 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 it's flipping open, it's flipping open the, the mirror. It's actually sort of trotting out you know, all of the, uh, the toiletries and sort of setting up camp you know, on a bus <laughs> or a train. That's the issue. I mean, of course, I don't think it... Yeah. Putting up putting on makeup can be a really artistic experience for people around you unlike people screaming into the telephones which is really uh, more offensive i find but makeup is a is a playful you know it's sort of being among actors and people who want to sort of play with their appearance i think that's actually quite nice i wouldn't sort of put that into the realm of bathrooms only tyler it's playful art that's what tessa says is suggesting uh, uh- Listen, I think you listen, if you want to have a kabuki theater moment, <laughs> then go back to the kabuki theater. Tyler Brule on the line from Hong Kong. Thank you so much for your time. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Uh, let's continue this discussion about the makeup. Uh, Tyler has got a point, hasn't he? You've got. I've had to do it on a what once in a sort of real emergency situations if I haven't got that 30 seconds to, to put to put the face on. And I just have that awful feeling of total, total self-awareness. I've had to do it once on a tube. And um, A, I had all the bits that were falling out all over the tube. That wasn't great. And then I saw people just looking at me going... Well, she's not doing a very good job of that, are you? And I just, you know, if I'm putting on makeup, it's a very, it's a private moment of chaos, ladies and gentlemen, trying to create order out of a few sticks and pencils. I think private moments of chaos in public are in a way also a little bit the salt of our cultural experience. It makes it more interesting. I wouldn't sort of refine everything to a private space. Of course, it can go wrong and you appear in a TV (laughs) studio studio with sort of the mascara being, you know, not where it's supposed to be. So, you know, that's personally, it's it's a decision maybe to take. But I think in principle to be so iffy about public spaces. I think we should all use them. We can also have a little bit of fun with it. I'm not sure. I mean, it all goes back a lot to the pandemic, doesn't it? When we were, when suddenly private became public. So we all were wondering, well, I wasn't, but lots of people wandering around in the equivalent of their pyjamas and, and, just sort of behaved as if the lounge was the was actually now the tube or the or the public space. Yeah, I think. I mean, it's kind of interesting to me where the line goes on this because I know some people do, and it was interesting to hear Tyler there sort of you do feel that makeup is a sort of private thing that you put on in the bathroom, comparable to say antiperspirant or you know. I take his point on that, but actually, I think a lot of certainly I would 
not feel worried at all by someone. In fact, I'm quite fascinated whenever I see a woman putting makeup on on the tube. I usually want to ask for tips. I mean, if you've got a steady enough hand to put eyeliner on on the tube, all power to you. <laughs> it's an amazing skill. It is. It's a strange... It suddenly becomes a sort of, like you said, a full kabuki. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's quite fascinating. But I suppose it's quite interesting what people define as private and public. I mean, I would certainly agree that things that disturb other people, such as, for instance, um, very loud conversations, are deeply irritating and inconsiderate. Um, but I sort of don't really see how it actually affects anyone if you're putting some mascara on. On the other hand, I did see somebody clipping their fingernails on the bus the other day, and I'm afraid that was too far. That's where we cross. That's where we draw the line. <laughs> really gross. I was, yeah, I was once on a Lufthansa flight. Um, I love Lufthansa, Lufthansa, but I didn't like the lady I was sitting next to because she gave herself a pedicure on the chair on, oh, the, no. on the seat next to me. Gross. And I wasn't in a position to say, "Madam, that is an impromptu pedicure on an on, a, on an aircraft." Is is really? <laughs> I mean, that's a bit. Much. It's really not where we want yeah. to go. We really, I, we just don't want to, because it's what you, I don't know. You, it's a messy business, and you don't want any of the mess there for the next person. We don't want any of it, really. Um, but I'm in agreement. I mean, yesterday I was sitting in a cafe outside in London, and London is a noisy place. And there was a fellow having a long conversation at top volume with whoever it was on that sort of nasty tinny um, mm. phone. And it was one of those things that you couldn't stop him because he's outside, he's in a public place, he's not on an aeroplane. But it just adds to the general layers of noise that you get in a city. And and, and what, I, I turned around to my husband and said, do I ask him to not do it? And he says, you can't, you can't stop people from, I'm not sure. from I mean, shouting sometimes... in the street at their phones. I mean, they look daft. You want to go up to them and say... You know you look like a fool, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to. Well, that's probably not helping. But I mean, sometimes <laughs> I turn around to people and say, like, look, um, if you lower your voice, we can hear more of our conversation. And I think if you do it in a nice way, sometimes people are just unaware. I think there's a generational jump also that people shout into their phones while they walk on the street because they just, you know, hold their hands on speaker. And while we are still sort of pressing it to our ears, which is sort of also old-fashioned and unnecessary, the best is actually if everyone has earphones in, can speak freely, but is not asked by the technology to scream. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a microphone, mm. uh, you know, via the the earphones, it's just not you have a normal voice. And I think this is all learning steps in this whole technological age that we are in. It is an astonishing way that our, our, our methods of communication and, and getting across the city have changed so much in the last few years. I mean, you're talking about earphones there. People used to really complain about the fact because you would, people would just be going through the cities, or people still now go through cities with their earbuds in and have absolutely zero recognition of their, of their external environment, which frankly, if you're walking around London, can be pretty dangerous. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I mean, noise cancelling is a problem, of course. Yes, sometimes there's some noises you don't want to cancel. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, it's fascinating. I think there are certain effects of this, as you say, societally, that perhaps we're only just beginning to know because all this tech is still really quite new, effectively. Um, you know, it's evolving, but it's it's still very new. I mean, something I've noticed, for instance, is um, when I sometimes teach students screenwriting is that I think students since the pandemic are finding dialogue a lot more difficult to write because they haven't heard it. And now when they go out in public, they're wearing their headphones the whole time. They don't listen to people speak. So I always tell them you have to, if you want to learn how people speak, take your headphones off, go and sit in a cafe for an hour, go and sit on a train and don't have your headphones on. And how surprised are they by what you say to them? I think, I mean, actually, I think there's a recognition among younger people that they've gone through a pretty weird experience actually with the pandemic and with some isolation Um, and of course ways of speaking evolve in lots of ways so also for instance online social media develops its own argo its own kind of you know language Um, so I mean in some ways they're incredibly creative with language and it's amazing but also you can't necessarily write dialogue that way the way people talk is very different the way people write even in terms of writing a tweet, is completely different. How do you navigate your way through that? Because um, when you meet... I'm just talking about the, the, the interactions I have with my 11-year-old son, who seems to exist entirely through a screen nowadays, despite, obviously, my anger. Um, his language and my language are moving further and further apart. And one wonders how you reconcile that and, and at what point you think, actually, well, I have to give him his grace to, to, to learn the language that of his peers... But it, it's an entirely global language now. It doesn't seem to belong to London or to New York or to Los Angeles. It seems to be an, a universal, as you say, argo. Yeah, 
I mean, it's kind of fascinating, right? I mean, <laughs> but do you have the feeling your son cannot speak? <laughs> because I'm just, I always wonder about this argument because these kids, I will not ever um, uh, think that your child coming from your very eloquent household will not get the ability to speak, even if he spends a lot of time on a computer where he learns a lot. I mean, they just learn so much through computers. It's just a different world to the way we grew up with sort of, you know, having being forced into dinner conversations with our parents every <laughs> night. I mean, there might be an advantage of having a more diverse uh, thing going on it on is, computers. It is good because he speaks different languages. You're quite right. He speaks different languages. Yeah, he speaks the language yeah. of the computer and he speaks the language of the dinner table, which lasts 30 seconds and then <laughs> off he goes because he goes back to the screen. Um, not that I'm expressing any frustration or anger about this at all but that the fact that the brain is brilliant at coming up with different kinds of language isn't it and when you're teaching people screenwriting how do you help them to grasp those different channels of language well we could have a full session now if you like. <laughs> <laughs> i mean teach us I, I i mean honestly i say the number one way is to listen it really is and i think you know if and as i say take your headphones off um just go and listen to people listen to how they talk interact with people and and actually do read online social media and all that because as you say it is it is amazing like i mean the language evolves so fast the idiom everything just comes out in completely different ways and it's very international i mean you know i think it's fascinating that accents change as well i mean the accent of kids in london now is different than when I was a kid, and I'm not that old, I'm in my 40s. Um, but it's been very influenced. I mean, sometimes they call it Jafakan. It's been very influenced by Caribbean accents, by African accents, by, you know, Pakistani and Indian accents, by other accents that have come in. And those kids speak differently, you know, and it's fascinating. And they, of course, they borrow words and so on. But also, yeah, the, the whole voice changes. The Cockney accent is dying out in favour of this. And this is something that is peculiarly British because of the, well, London only because of the the absolutely diverse makeup of the city. Absolutely, but it also transmits itself very quickly between kids nationally and internationally through social media, through YouTube, Snapchat, all of these kind of TikTok, everything. Well, there are geographical differences. For example, in Germany, people often complain that the youth is having a kind of uh, too much of a Turkish influence in their German. Um, and I find this peculiar because it's the same thing like what you say about yeah. the Jamaican influence here, that it might be a very good thing. It might be really enriching. So the question is, uh, like in all this debate also about how Twitter influences um, traditional language, um, it might change the grammar. It might not always change it in a traditionally good sense, but maybe language is sort of a living thing like societies are and we'll just all learn a little bit more. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to a bit more Jamaican and a less, little less Cockney, but I'm also not against Cockney. I mean, I think you, you'll have all these different influences which might be really, really enriching. I mean, heaven forbid anyone to try and meddle with German grammar. That would be... Well, exactly. <laughs> and I think it's, it's really harsh and old-fashioned to think that there's no influence from immigrant um uh, groups uh, coming to the holy German language. I mean, you know, the German language changed quite a bit over the last centuries, and I think we'll see a bit more change in the future to uh, come. Is there a lot of resistance to this, I wonder? I mean, we, yes. we just need to look back at... Mm. And well, in France as well, big well, resistance. Well, of course, absolutely. Yeah. Well, speaking of France, I mean, it made leads me to think of what happened in 1066 here in the United here in England when it, we had an Anglo-Saxon society which saw something in a field and called it a coo, a cow and then the French arrived and they had beef because they never saw the cow they just saw the, the dish on their plate <laughs> and they have boeuf as as you know as a result so we have to have this sort of this this mixing language never ever stops um the French quite like to push against that, though, don't they? They do. The Académie Française is, of course, extremely uh, concerned with preserving French. And I remember when I was a kid, they were busy inventing words like baladour for Walkman. Um, and, uh, you know, la fin de semaine, not the weekend, uh, not le weekend, that wasn't allowed and all of this. But the thing is, I sort of feel this is King Canute ordering back the flood. You just cannot stop it. Language does change. And actually, that's very exciting and quite marvellous how it keeps evolving, keeps reinventing. I mean, I think it's kind of wonderful like Tessa says when you hear these changes and you certainly can't stop it so you might as well roll with it and I know some people do get terribly upset about grammar and you know meaning and so on changing I mean you know the fact is things like the word literally is now also defined as its opposite because people will use it rhetorically and emphatically so they'll say stuff like 
I'm literally going to die if I do anything like this. No, you won't. You're figuratively going to die. But, you know, but the thing is, the meaning changes and we just can't, you know, those of us who are trying to cling to this rock, you cannot change it. But people also who defend often local dialects or how things have to be, and then they forget that actually the words we use in local dialects have come from different cultures into the language in Vienna, for example, which was this melting pot of all the Austrian-Hungarian empire around the, the turn of the century to the 20th century. And you had, for example, words that we use today in Viennese, like a uh, slang word for a friend is the habara, which uh, comes from the Hebrew word of chaver and came via these sort of Jewish uh, immigrants and and. Um, And has stayed in the in the Viennese language, although all this anti-Semitism you would have thought would have, you know, pushed it out. But of course not, because people have long forgotten where it comes from. So one of our favorite uh, words for friend in Vienna is actually coming from Hebrew. And that's a good thing, I think. How does one respond, though, to an 11-year-old boy who speaks from the Internet? And I, <laughs> I'm not good. You talked about, the, you know, the evolution of language. I, If I, for one second... Ad ad adopted one word from his vernacular, it would just not go well. <laughs> no, but as long as he speaks to you, it's a good thing. My son, for example, at this age, he was sort of only speaking to me in rap rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually quite a funny way of experiencing his world also. Okay. Do you yeah. have people who respond to you entirely in rap rhymes? Uh, Not lately, but I mean, you know, I, I encourage them to try it. I mean, that's a very skilled way of speaking and, a, you know, particularly fascinating and, and very much a kind of fusion culture of speaking as well. Um, yeah, I think I think with your son, you know, you, he has to live in the world that is being created now, right? He can't go back and live in the world that we, we grew up in. Um, so it's very interesting for that generation. They have to learn to mediate between their parents who don't speak like that and their peers who absolutely do. And it's changing fast. So I think these kids will become extremely linguistic skilled actually and learn to speak several different languages. Well, no one will understand a word of what he says outside the M25 <laughs> here in London. Um, you're listening to Monocle on Sunday exploring language with Alex von Tunzelman and Tessa Shishkovitz. Uh, let's head now to Helsinki to hear from our correspondent Petri Burtsoff. A very good morning to you Petri. Good morning Emma and I won't be able to do this news monologue in uh, rap rhyme I'm afraid. I'm absolutely devastated by that pickup. Um, but one thing I do want to ask, actually, while I have you, and this is totally un unprompted, so um, I'm sorry to throw you under the bus here, but Finnish is very much a language of its own kind, isn't it? It's incredibly difficult to learn. So uh, when you're when you're sort of trying to see the evolution of the international evolution of, of, of language, and, and where does Finnish fit in all this? Because it, it doesn't travel quite as much. That's a really good uh, question, actually. I just uh, heard over the weekend, sort of overheard a discussion um, in, in Helsinki when uh, um, um, two sort of elderly ladies were saying that how they hate how much English young people use when they when they speak Finnish. And I've actually I've actually paid attention to the same same fact that young people, young Finns, they 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 take words from English and they also switch into English a, a lot. So I, I guess that's not necessarily a good sign for, for, for the language. But then again, you know, language is a hybrid and it's always evolving and not standing still. So maybe in the future we'll be speaking this like Finglish. Uh, maybe I can do this in Finnish in like 10 years time and you'll understand. That's brilliant. I mean, the one thing that I do wonder is whether the young people of Finland are speaking better English than the Brits. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Mind you, mind you, they're they're picking up. Um, the, uh, for some reason, they're picking up the American English more than the British um, English. I don't know. Maybe it's because of TV or YouTube or or whatever. But yeah, yeah, that that happens. Always has. I fear. Always will. Um, and and it's and it is just parts of language. Um, one thing that we do need to talk about though is is um the fact that fin Finland's border with Russia and the sort of the cross cultural permeation there has taken another step. Um, sort of, of of separation this week, hasn't it? Yes, it has, Emma. So on Friday, um, Friday night, midnight, um, the Finnish government introduced a ban for cars with Russian license plates to uh, to enter um, Finland. And it's actually, I mean, this, the decision follows um, a similar ban by um, other countries, EU countries bordering uh, Russia, so Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Earlier uh, this week, introduced a similar ban, and it's actually. 
um, it's based on a European Union-wide uh, directive, <clears throat> which which uh, urges member states to to ban. Um, Russian license plates um, car because um, the background to this is that Russians, Russian citizens have been sort of circumventing the uh, the sanctions imposed on the country um, uh, by by crossing uh, crossing the Finnish border or the Estonian Latvian Lithuanian border when they have a, when they have a visa to another country and this this is basically the the ban is meant to make it just e- even more difficult for for Russians to enter the EU. How much is this going to be a problem for for those Finnish? towns on the border with Russia whose whose livelihoods for such a long time have depended on that that sort of ability for Russians to, to nip over do their shopping do their work and then go back again that's a very good question I mean we've already seen uh, the effect if you go to the border border towns of Imatralapen and the, those those places you don't have the Russian tourists shopping anymore and they have absolutely the local spas the local hotels have depended on on, on that as well so it is having an effect I don't think this latest ban will have such a large effect um, um, and I actually just reading the morning's papers I mean they they asked the border guards and they said maybe a few cars less but I mean then, then there was a funny interview with somebody from St. Petersburg, who said, "Well, they'll they'll just uh, cycle over the border because cycles are not banned, bicycles." So, <laughs> all right. So everyone's on a push bike now, or a moped, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or a horse knows? and hopefully, cart, whatever yeah, they can think of. <laughs> um, right. Let's move to Sweden. Um, and King, uh, I think, is Carol the sixteenth, has been right. on the throne for a very, very, very long time. Yes, a very long time, time, a half a century, 50, 50 years. So, so this weekend we've seen um, the uh, lots of. I, I, I believe it's a four-day celebration for for this uh, to mark the anniversary of Carl uh, Gustav XVI's accession to the throne. Um, and we've seen kind of it's. I mean, it's it's interesting because I mean, Sweden. We think of Sweden as this very egalitarian, um, uh, modern, progressive country, and then seeing this sort of pomp and everything, uh, you know, ceremony. And, and all these age-old traditions of jubilees and golden uh, wagons and all of that in in downtown Stockholm, and it's just it's it's a it's a bit of a bit of a mismatch in a, in a way to watch all of that. But yeah, massive celebrations in Stockholm, wonderful um, opera per- performance at the at the Drottningholm uh, Palace uh, where where the king lives, and uh, an uh, outdoor concert and all kinds of uh, horse-drawn carriage parades and and lots of lots of dignitaries there. And he is actually, um, uh, it says here, he's the second longest reigning European monarch alive today after, um, I believe, the Danish uh, queen or king. So, yeah, that, that's after Queen Elizabeth II's passing. So, you know, he's, he's been there for a while. And do you ever get the questions asked that we do sometimes here in the United Kingdom about the relevance of the, of the monarchy? I mean, what surprised me when I was looking at this story is that... Um, it was only in 1975 that the, the the crown was stripped to being purely ceremonial, being a being a figurehead. Up until that point, there was the possibility of them interfering in politics. Yeah, yeah, there 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 was, and 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 with this uh, uh, jubilee, we've seen a lot of. I mean, in the Swedish press, there's been a lot of opinion polls um, asking the Swedes if they still support the the monarchy, and a you know a large majority of them them do. And I I just I just think it's so interesting because the picture we have, as I said, the picture we have of Sweden, it's it's it doesn't necessarily fit. But then then again, as you said, he is a ceremonial figure, mind you. He has some sway. I mean, not official, but for example, during the COVID pandemic, he came out quite strongly uh, against the Swedish policy and uh, people believe that it had an effect um, on, on the policy as well. So whenever he is sort of outspoken about something, it, it, it has a bearing on politics too. Uh, let's move on to Norway. We're doing the rounds here today, aren't we, Petri? We're going to, we're going to the seabed of Norway. Yes, we are. We are. Who knows? Are, are we in the future? So Norway, anyways, plans. It, it still has to pass. This motion has to pass the parliamentary vote. But they they plan to be the first country to start um, commercial deep sea mining if this proposal is is um, is passed. And interesting. The, the interesting thing is, I mean, the deep sea uh, the deep sea bed is is uh, very unknown. Both sort of the the, the flora and fauna that lives there, but also the minerals that might be there or might not be there. But there's a lot of potential anyways. That's what the Norwegians believe. So so the reasoning here is that they, they could find all kinds of mineral that would, uh, critical minerals, for example, to uh, build electric vehicle batteries, wind turbines and, and solar panels. And then and 
and thus they would help Europe, uh, Nor Norway argues, reduce its dependence on on China. Um, but there are a lot of environmental agencies that are against against this deep uh, deep sea uh, mining because simply because we don't know enough about it. It's a difficult situation, isn't it? Because there are two two things pressurizing society in this one, which is to remove the dependence on China, as you say, but also to um, reduce its dependence on um, on oil and gas, which is you know what Norway is incredibly good at exporting. Um, so how much? So where do you think Norway is going to end up with this one? Because it has to be a compromise somewhere. Oh, if I if I if I only knew, I mean. Um... I, I have a feeling they they they're gonna pass this and they're gonna start start doing this because I mean one day it's going to to happen anyway so I I, I think they want to be the first ones uh, fun ones to sort of go go ahead with all of this and not necessarily a, a bad thing that if somebody's gonna go ahead with this it is a sort of a modern progressive country such as such as Norway and one interesting thing about this all is that this area where they're planning to start mining is the size of the United Kingdom you know 280 thousand square meters it's a massive area we're not talking just some small uh, backwater or something in the middle of nowhere this is a massive area close to the Svalbard archipelago which is kind of close to the North Pole uh, finally let's talk about a ram called Ulfur um, <laughs> that's been seen in Iceland and is sporting a rather natty new color Yes, yes. So this, I just, I love this story. So, so they've, um, Iceland, of course, is famous for its uh, sheep, and they have discovered two previously unknown colors of sheep. I mean, these are not, of course, these are not unknown colors. We kind of know all the colors, but we haven't seen these colors in, in sheep. And I'm looking at this, as you said, Ram for the wolf has this kind of a gray uh, brown uh, color that, that the scientists here say that they've never seen in in Icelandic sheep before. And it must be due to some unknown uh, genetic phenomenon, mutation that has caused it. And then another color they've actually, well, this is not, not new, but they've discovered for the first time that Two completely black sheep can have a white um, uh, lamb, which which has not happened happened before. So there you go, really breaking news coming out of Iceland. I mean, how much, how hugely significant is this story for both the the Icelandic human and indeed sheep population? <laughs> of course, of massive significance. No, no, all kidding aside. I mean. Um, it's at least a nice news story to uh, to to do the rounds around the around the world. But I I don't think this will have a massive effect on on the on on sheep farming in in farming in Iceland on unless you know these mutations keep on happening and we'll have completely new types of sheep and all kinds of scary scientific science fiction stuff but yeah the, maybe not the mind boggles as to what color we could go to next Petri Burtsoff <laughs> in Helsinki that's so thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday um, speaking as a woman whose hair comes out of hair color comes out of a bottle anyone else around the table I'm looking at you Alex <laughs> I'm a natural purple <laughs> <laughs> Just wondering that the sort of why this is so marvelously exciting. I mean, it is, it, it was, it's a brown sheep. Yeah, absolutely. And the question is, <laughs> oh, he's very handsome. Very he's handsome. very <laughs> handsome. And I wonder if he has pram size or not. That's yeah. sort of the subject of the day. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm joined by Alex von Tunzelman and Tessa Shishkovitz. We'll be back in a moment with more. Monocle's free to subscribe daily email newsletters, the Monocle Minute and Weekend Edition, deliver headlines and a swathe of recommendations from our editors, correspondents and bureau. You can also browse a menu of radio highlights and Monocle films. Our weekend newsletters deliver great columns from Andrew Tuck on Saturdays and Tyler Brule on Sundays, cultural highs, media diets and far-off newspapers, recipes to cook at home. It's a fun take on weekend living. Head to monocle.com forward slash minute to be part of the conversation. Ten forty-two in Zurich, nine forty-two here in London. Let's have a look at what's going on in the papers. Uh, I'm delighted to say Alex von Tunzelman and Tessa Shishkovitz are still around the table with me. Tessa, what have you spotted? Well, one of my favourite things to read on the weekend is always lunch with the FT. And this weekend we have Gillian Tett interviewing Walter Isaacson, who is just coming out now with his. Um, um, biography of Elon Musk and that of course his insights he's a quite a 
um, uh, complex personality himself, and he has written already quite a lot of uh, biographies about people who are sort of somewhere between genius and crazy. And um, but the Elon Musk, of course, tops them all, and he's describing in this uh, interview over crab in New Orleans, how, uh, and I mean crab like in fish, um, uh, how he spent months shadowing Elon Musk, who then would give him all very sort of sensitive information about, for example, how to switch off or not switch off Starlink, his satellite system, over uh, the Crimea uh, when he was sort of cooperating with the Ukrainians. So you get this feeling that there's a lot of very sensitive politics, which is really sort of more than just a tech giant playing around. It's sort of playing around with world politics and big decisions. And so this book will come out now. And I think it might be quite a good read for all of us to understand what will happen with our own interests uh, concerning uh, Musk uh, being sort of, you know, playing around with Twitter or X, as it's called now. And all these kind of things um a public interest by now. What I found fascinating about this article in the FT wasn't necessarily the subject matter of Elon Musk himself, but the the the, the work involved in biography, um, and the the fact was remains is in in doing her homework um, in preparation for the interview with Walter Isaacson. Um, Gillian Tett was uh, went through the other biographies that. Um, Isaacson has written and it's absolutely everybody Da Vinci, Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, Steve Jobs and uh, she says the resulting stack of paper was almost a foot high and, and Isaacson's talking about the fact that he had to literally be next to Musk for yeah. two years Yeah, yeah. I mean can you imagine the family? Yeah <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I mean, In terms of sort of the creation of history through biography it's 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 a very very difficult path that you tread, isn't it? Because you will always have a narrative being constructed by the author. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot of debate among historians about whether biography is history or not. Um, And, you know, biography and memoir are such complicated uh, genres anyway, in that actually a lot of the time, and I think this is already something that people are talking about with regard to this particular book, you know, it's how much is this a construction because it does seem like Isaacson got really quite close to Musk. And already, of course, one of the big claims that Tessa has mentioned has been Isaacson's kind of walked it back, you know, which is that he said that uh, Musk, in the book, he claims that Musk turned off Starlink, you know, during this crucial moment in Crimea. And actually then Musk said, no, I just didn't turn it on. And Isaacson said, oh, yes, yes, that's what I meant, which already sort of, okay, well, who's in charge of this narrative? Who's in charge of this story? What's happening? That's quite a crucial difference. <laughs> so, Oh, absolutely. So, you know, there's um, there's already sort of debate around that and around what this book is. And I think it's very difficult for biographers who get very close to their subject um, because, of course, then you have a relationship and that does change how you think. I mean, certainly as a historian, I'd really much rather write the biography of a person who's already dead, <laughs> who couldn't actually influence it so much. But you see, that's the difference also for journalists, because of, you're totally right from the point of view of a historian. But as a journalist, I would not say no to uh, spend two years very close to Elon Musk sort of observing how he interacts with people and what he does, because that's just of a journalistic interest. What it means for your integrity as a journalist and also if you're being asked to change, you know, whatever, because what he says here in the interview, uh, Isaacson is, is saying that he always gave him everything, all the notes, everything, which were sort of even questionable in terms of uh, business uh, dealings. Yeah, So Elon Musk could have been much, much more careful. So as a journalist, this is a gift, mm. in a sense, also to have this access. And in creating a historical record, there is always that overwhelming pressure to create a good story, which can sometimes get in the way of history. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I mean, historians are all subject to that. It's all narrativizing at some level. So there's always an urge. And I mean, it's a very human urge to make story out of disparate events. That's what we do as humans. Um, even called the rules of associative coherence.
the term for it, um, <laughs> that we, we impose meaning on randomness. Um, absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, Isaacson's a very smart guy and is obviously aware of some of these pitfalls. But I think it's very difficult being around somebody like Musk, who is so powerful. And there are serious questions around this as well, about how much power has been accrued by this one man in terms of wealth, but also as we can see sort of, you know, major international political power, um, not just about Starlink, and, but also about Twitter, or as he now calls it X, and that's his own name for it, and nobody's really using it, but we all acknowledge that it's the change. But I mean, you know, he, he has enormous, enormous power, and I do think there are very serious questions about how we address that as a society, allowing individuals to rise to the level, really, of a nation state. Um, let's move on to the uh, way that Le Monde has covered... Um, the Morocco earthquake last week. It's a really difficult narrative for France, isn't it? Um, Alex, you've picked up on this story, haven't you? Um, France currently locked out of helping Morocco unless things have changed rapidly in the last few hours. Uh, certainly, um, yeah. So the way that Le Monde has, been managed to, has managed to do this, and this is where, where arguably French papers get it really, really right, is that they talk about cultural heritage. Yes, and I mean, obviously, the sort of the primary concern when this awful tragedy happened uh, last week was very much about the human cost, obviously, and quite rightly so. But I do think there's a longer view here. And of course, again, as a historian, naturally, I do have an interest in this about what happens to Morocco's cultural heritage. And perhaps this is another place where the international community can help. Um, and, you know, it's really only just becoming clear now because obviously the priority was the, you know, rescue and mitigation of all of, uh, of what was actually happening is kind of the extent of the damage. So, I mean, there's talk in Le Monde, for instance, they're reporting about... Um, I think I have seen quite a lot of coverage of this, the Tinmal Mosque collapsing in Talatan and Yakub, which is very close to the epicentre, and that really was kind of very important mosque and had already been uh, restored. Um, and I'm also very sad to see that uh, the fortified village of Eight Ben Hadou, which is near Urzazate, uh, has been quite damaged. And that village, I mean, film fans would have seen it in Lawrence of Arabia, TV fans would have seen it in Game of Thrones. You know, it's this very beautiful kind of labyrinthine um town dating back to the 17th century and that you know some of that has really sort of crumbled to pieces so. and you and one of the questions that they ask in this article Tessa, is how can how can these places be saved and rebuilt and 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 restored in a way that actually isn't just accessible isn't just a marker of um time and history but also is could create a new generation of people going to see this but I think what we maybe we have to get used to a very bizarre thought the longer we live on this earth, we might have to recreate some of its wonders. And if an earthquake takes down um, the village of Eid Ben Hadou, which of course most of us know now from. <laughs> Game of Thrones. But maybe we have to rebuild things. And, you know, I never felt very comfortable, for example, in the old uh, city of Warsaw, which is entirely rebuilt after it was destroyed by in the in the Second World War. But it's that's our only chance and we maybe have to embrace it and see that we rebuild things with the same materials, with the same spirit in order to preserve it for future generations because we will always have these natural disasters that destroy so much and we have also political disasters like, you know, the Islamic State destroying, you know, old uh, artifacts and then you have uh, wars and then we have to sort of come up with ideas to bring them back to humankind just to revisit them. What is the historian's view? I mean, historians have multiple views, that's why you're historians. Um, but the the view of doing something like the total reconstruction of Warsaw, it, I, I mean, it's, it's an act of fabulous defiance, but at the same time, it seeks to erase what has happened. Yeah, I mean, there's very kind of mixed views on that, as you rightly suggest. It's, you know, there are people who, of course, want to see things rebuilt, and there's often good reasons to rebuild things. Um, there is absolutely another point of view that says that actually we should accept that change happens, whether, as you say, through natural or indeed political disasters very frequently, and that we can't cling on to these monuments of the past and we have to just evolve and let them go. At some point, this will happen. Um, and of course, the vast majority of art and heritage is destroyed in the world, always has been. Um, that's always been the case. It's only very, very few things ever that get preserved. Um, so, you know, it's a very complicated question. And I, I think, you know, there are difficult discussions going on around this. And there are also discussions often about 
some places should be destroyed. I mean, there's a, for instance, there's been a lot of conversation in, in Germany and in places that were occupied by the Nazis about what you do with uh, Nazi infrastructure, most of which has been taken down. But there are huge places that are, have, have to be repurposed and reused. You know, what do you do with these places? They can't all be museums. But, you know, there's a very bizarre example in Austria, obviously, as always, uh, what to do with the birthplace of Adolf Hitler, which is a building um, where they were lodges uh, in Braunau. And by some bizarre incident, Google Maps took me by Braunau the other day because there was a, an accident on the highway when we were on our way from London, to, from Vienna to London by car <clears throat> because of the dog. Yeah, but so we ended up in Adolf Hitler's uh, birth city, and the Austrian state and Brauner itself has not done anything with this building for the past decades, and it's just bizarre because you said that they used it as a library in between and all sorts of things. And my personal opinion, of course, would have been this building should have been flattened in whenever it was possible, 1945, and then built, you know, a supermarket on it or a parking lot or maybe even a police station, as has been done in Germany in a lot of these um, uh, former Gestapo headquarters and stuff like that, just in order not to have anyone attracted who thinks, still thinks that Adolf Hitler is a hero to come there and worship this place. And it's so bizarre because it took such a long time, such a long time with no reason to do something like that. You give something a beating heart, don't you, if you give it a location? Exactly. You certainly can do. Yeah. So, I mean, so I think the questions around this are very, very complicated. And then equally you go to, I remember being quite shocked, actually, a few years ago in Paris. I went to visit the site of the Trancy uh, transport camp, the concentration camp from the Second World War, where Jews were interned often on their way to Auschwitz or somewhere else. And that's just been turned back into housing. I mean, literally rooms where people were stored on the way there that have graffiti on the walls by Jews that were being taken to a camp are now low-income housing um, and with immigrants living there. And I felt very discomforted by that. I was, you know, I thought there's something quite horrendous about this, but then at the same time, maybe it isn't. I mean, you can't completely erase something from the world. So it's very, it's a very difficult question. I wonder whether the issue there is what it's been turned into. Had it been turned into something rather more positive and hopeful and wonderful, then perhaps we would have thought... Ah, there's a little bit of modicum of intelligence there, but if you house asylum seekers in there, it yeah, has what that. Are you saying? It has that sort of transitory. Mm. Um, it felt pretty horrendous. Grim, I'll be pretty honest. grim. I was, I was not happy. Um, let's rework history in Munich. Um, Oktoberfest has started. At regular listeners, if you are regularly tuned in to Monocle on Sunday, you will know that we are all in full dirndl or have been for the last few weeks pulled in and uh, sitting up nice and straight. We were in uh, Munich a couple of weeks ago for the Monocle Quality of Life conference. Uh, the great debate about the, uh, the the appropriateness of dirndls was had. Uh, dirndls won. Um, but Alex, in, in not in Berlin, in Munich, the Oktoberfest has got a Barbie dirndl feeling. We've all gone a bit pink. According to DW, yes, apparently the most popular dirndl this year is going to be pink in honour of the Barbie sensation sweeping the world. So I'm very interested in whether we think uh, this is, you know, the dirndl obviously has all sorts of associations and actually I'm pretty sure Tessa can talk about this as a dirndl wearer. <laughs> we are all looking at you as the Austrian around the yes. table. Obviously you clearly carry an enormous amount of knowledge in this department. <laughs> well, in my generation, I have to say, and in my... Um, the type of Austrian I am, you know, they're, they're mountain Austrians and coffee shop Austrians. I belong to the coffee shop Austrians. <laughs> so in Vienna, we would just not wear dirndls in my generation. I have to say there was a bit of a shift because this Oktoberfest fashion that sweeps the world meant also that it was almost in a new generation. They didn't have this <clears throat> ideological problem anymore that we had. And young people run around and wear dirndls. So now, in the Barbie sense, yeah, is it's quite interesting because Barbie, of course, Barbie and dirndl combined could be the most horrendous <laughs> reactionary <laughs> expression of female dressing. But in a way, as you saw, yeah, I don't know if you saw the Barbie film. I did, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. 
and I thought it was really a good feel uh, feminist uh, movie with with all sorts of twists. And so in that sense, if you now have a twist like this on a dirndl on the Oktoberfest, which for me is also, you know, my timeline is full with people escaping from Munich once the <laughs> Oktoberfest starts. Yeah. But if you already go there and if you already wear a dirndl and if you already go into this whole bizarre sort of experience then give it a twist come in pink wear your Birkenstocks proudly and just have fun with it how much do you think Barbie missed a trick with this because we had Birkenstocks in the in the film but we didn't have a dirndl Alex well you know a failure of internationalism I'm sure had it been made in <laughs> Germany or Austria it would have been a very different uh, look and I'm sure there probably are Barbies with dirndls um, available because they, of course, she comes in many uh, national varieties. So. Other dentals are available. Uh, my <laughs> the warmest of thanks to all my guests, Alex von Tunzelman and Tessa Shishkovitz, uh, around the table here in London, but also to our editorial director Tyler Brule on the line from Hong Kong and Petri Burtsov in Helsinki too. That's all we have time for today's program. Uh, thanks to the producers Desiree Bandley and Mariella Bevan, and thanks also to Mariella for being uh, the studio manager as well. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday is back. Back at the same time next week. But until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye. Écoutez la radio Monocle. So, Hatcher Radio Monocle. You're listening to Monocle Radio. With smart coverage from over 100 editors and correspondents, Monocle brings you the latest in global affairs, business, media design, and much more. For Monocle in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. For Monocle in Singapore, I'm Naomi Shu Elegant. For Monocle in Porto, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Stay tuned. More great programming up next. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. It's 1800 in Tokyo, 11am in Berlin, 10am here at Midori House in London and 4am in Chicago. You're listening to Monaco Radio.